it's not hard to find people who criticize John MacArthur. One of my favorites is a pantheist named Deepak Chopra. He used to get all worked up over MacArthur's Orthodox Christianity when the two of them would appear side by side on the show Larry King Live. I mean, you know, right now, I think we can think of evolution in terms of metabiology, the evolution of our consciousness and the evolution of the consciousness of our consciousness. What's the source of thought? Where is creativity and imagination (laughs) and inspiration? The evolution of our consciousness and the evolution of our consciousness of of our consciousness. These days, the internet, mostly the dark regions called Twitter, is full of armchair theologians, crackpots and egalitarians who say MacArthur went to all the wrong schools. They constantly criticize his tone, complain about his content, diss his style, and, with no apparent knowledge of the man himself, impugn his character. The critics have even shown up at Grace Community Church to protest on the sidewalk. An angry Scottish man once interrupted the service, storming the stage to criticize MacArthur. Today, we are going to talk about some of the controversies that once made the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today say this. I saw that John MacArthur was involved in another controversy. I thought of a line by Ronald Reagan during one of the presidential debates back in the day. Here we go again. (laughs) Or here, there you go again, I think is what he said. John has certainly been involved in theological battles. And lots of folks have criticized his doctrine. We'll look at a couple of famous examples of that in this episode. But we're also going to look at the ordinary criticism that every pastor deals with, including Pastor MacArthur. The fact is, John is criticized not only because he's well-known, but because he's a pastor. Let's face it, no matter the size of your social media following, If you love Jesus, and if you're faithful in ministry, you will have critics. The question is, how should you respond to them? When do you address their concerns, and when do you choose to ignore them? And how do you know if the critics have a point? As we address those questions, we'll find a lot of help and wisdom from John's ministry. We've talked about various controversies on this podcast. But today, we're going to talk about controversy itself and help pastors navigate criticism, just like Jesus did. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. And this is season two of the podcast, From the Center. The Entrusted, The Convictions and Legacy of John MacArthur. This episode, the sixth of season two, is titled MacArthur and the Critics. Let's start with a criticism of John's theology. 
an instance when he responded for the sake of God's truth. To do that, let's go back to the late 1980s. Sounds rad, doesn't it? This story takes us to a town just outside of Philadelphia, Limerick, Pennsylvania. John is at a convention, facing a lot of friendly faces and a few very hostile ones. Here's MacArthur with a little background. My father was a member of the IFCA, the Independent Fundamental Churches of America, which was a uh, association of, in, of churches that were independent. So it wasn't like a denomination, but they did have a doctrinal statement. Um, because I was in my dad's church when I graduated from seminary and was ordained, I was ordained by the a committee from the IFCA. And I uh, had no problem with their doctrinal statement. They, they were people who had basically come out of denominations that had gone liberal. And, you know, I, I affirmed uh, what, what the doctrinal statement held. There was, a, there was an extreme fundamentalist component to that group. Not all of them, but like usually in any organization where you have the extreme aspect of it, they, they become the squeaky wheel that gets all the attention. So there were some hard-lined kind of fundamentalists up in New England who were relentlessly hammering on me for whatever I said or didn't say or how I said it or what I believed. And they wanted to run me out of the IFCA. Um, I don't know what their motive was. They they surely did not like me. They didn't appreciate me. And they, they just kept attacking and attacking and attacking. And finally, um, at that particular time, it was Dick Gregory, who I think was the president of the ISCA, and he said, he was supportive of me, and he said, we need to deal with this. Because they just keep... Uh, attacking you and they keep writing the IFCA and denouncing you and you shouldn't be a member and you ought to have your membership removed and um, so let's just let's just we need to get this resolved and, and he said would you be willing to come back to Pennsylvania and uh, let the IFCA guys that have these criticisms all gather and ask you questions and I said yeah fine fine. If you want to do that, I'm willing to do it. Why were these pastors criticizing MacArthur? Why did they want to kick him out of the IFCA? John kind of um, became a, I would say, the premier personality in IFCA. Most famous, most wide, widely heard, most ardently followed. This is Rick Gregory. He's the senior pastor of Grace Bible Church of Fair Oaks, just north of Sacramento. His father was Dick Gregory, who, as John said, was a friend and president of the IFCA in the late 80s. And there were things, positions that he came out with very clearly that certain portions of the IFCA took umbrage one of those issues was lordship salvation, the idea that all Christians must submit to Jesus as Lord. 
Another was John's view of church government and elders. But the biggest issue, the one that led to that famous meeting in Pennsylvania, was the blood of Christ controversy. For some reason, several IFCA pastors became convinced that what John taught about the blood of Christ was actually heresy. The blood of Christ became a euphemism. And you know, revivalists and fundamentalists, you're saved by the blood. Um, the power is in the blood and the, the, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Somebody say, it's the blood. It's the blood. If you would learn how to plead the blood over your family, if you would learn how to plead the blood over your children, you would see a transformation like never before. Somebody just say, the blood. The blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of. Come on, this is the stuff we used to do for communion. Yeah. These are the songs that carried us. It washes wine. Come on, sing it like it's Sunday morning. Say, oh, the blood. Yes, Lord. Oh, the blood. And that, that became to a, to a essentially doctrinally illiterate kind of southern evangelicalism the, they didn't know how that worked but they knew it was in the blood I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to undersell their biblical knowledge but um, that was such a buzz phrase that it carried a lot of weight so I was preaching a message. No, it was a Q&A. I was doing a Q&A at Grace, and somebody asked me wh whether we're saved by the blood of Christ. And I answered that question, and I think it came up in print in uh, you know something that Grace Church put out. And I said, look, the power is not in the fluid. <laughs> That's not the point. Uh, I, I said, the blood is simply a a word for death. It's simply a dramatic way to express his death. There's, the power was in his dying, you know, as a sin bearer, substitute for us to propitiate the wrath of God. The, the power is not in the, in the blood. Well, the first reaction I got to that came from Bob Jones University. And they published in their Faith for the Family magazine, the last issue of that magazine, I think, by the way, that I had denied the blood of Jesus. And we were immediately kicked off 54 radio stations, grace to you. And all they had to say in the article was, he denied the blood. He denied that the power's in the blood. So that, that was the controversy going at the time when I showed up in Pennsylvania. So you have all these complaints coming to the executive committee of the IFCA about this member, and they were calling for John to be booted from IFCA because of these positions. And the affection that existed between many in the IFCA for John appreciation of his work. They're actually leaning on some of his expositional work and his commentaries. 
cause them to say, no, we don't want to see John gone. These people that are so snipey and, you know, John was answering these things individually with people, but because it just kept like whack-a-mole, kept coming up all the time, that's the best thing to do is bring John in and in his most competent and capable manner, biblically deal with his positions. And he did it not to try John as much as to silence those that were so ardently opposed to John and critical of the IFCA for allowing John to be in it. They talk about the Inquisition. They talk about the, the trial, you know, the, all these pejorative terms for it. But in reality, it was viewed as John being able to speak for himself and silence his critics than it was um, an effort to have him, um, you know, some people look at it like it was like the Pharisees coming to Jesus trying to trip him up, right? That's not the atmosphere. John's defense was recorded that day, and the entire thing is worth listening to. You can find it at gty.org. Here is Rick Gregory's father, Dick, moderating the event. Because he is one of our number, one of our family, and because there have been part of our family who have had certain questions about certain things that uh, Dr. MacArthur has written or said, we have opted for the proper way of dealing with that kind of situation. See, we're seeking for a oneness. We're seeking for solutions, not for winning of one side over another, for understanding. And so we've invited him here today in order that you might be able to receive individual and personal answers. And so I've asked Dr. MacArthur to come. We as a committee have asked him to come. And he has graciously agreed to come. He is not on trial. He is here as our brother. So John, come. I uh, think I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I'll know for sure in a little while. I was probably two, two thirds, three quarters of the way back on the right side as you face the pulpit with my wife and the auditorium sat about a thousand people and it was probably mostly full. So there were a bunch of people there and it was an opportunity that I, you know, um, I'm grateful that I had the ability to witness simply because of the way that John carried himself and conducted himself and answered questions with such a, like I said, a biblical orientation. It's not what I say as much as what does the Bible say? And let's go, let's turn to it. He elaborated, of course, but really the, the meat of what he said was scripture. Let me address the question of the blood of Christ in, in a direct way, because this is such an important issue, such a potentially volatile issue. First of all, let me say the blood of Christ is precious. And I would not equivocate on that. It is precious blood. And I believe that blood, the blood of Christ, the term blood, is the chief New Testament term to describe the atonement. I think it is a comprehensive term, and I think when it, it is 
indicated in the New Testament, it is indicated as a term encompassing the atoning work. I do not believe that the New Testament teaches that the blood of Christ in the epistles when it's used simply refers to the fluid in the body of Christ. I believe that it embraces the atoning work. For we have been redeemed by the shedding of his blood. That encompasses all of the atonement. It is interesting to note that uh, though Jesus shed his blood at the cross, he didn't bleed to death. It's very clear that he yielded up his life at least three hours before his heart was pierced, his side was pierced. And when he died and there rushed forth blood, it indicates that he had not bled to death. There was plenty of blood still there apparently to have sustained his life. He died not because he bled to death, but because he yielded up his spirit. Now, what are people teaching about the blood? There are some teaching today that it was not human, but it was the blood of God. And typically they use one obscure interpretation of one verse, Acts 20, 28, which talks about the church which has been purchased with his blood, and they make the antecedent of his God. That is, a, that is an arbitrary use of the Greek. The antecedent of the blood could equally be Christ in that context, but even more importantly, there is no reference in the New Testament to the blood as the blood of God ever. Every mention of the blood connected with a personality is connected with Christ. It is always the blood of Christ, the blood of his cross. Never does it say the blood of God. That is a rather new interpretation, by the way, of Acts 20, 28 that I have never been able to find in any commentary. It was tense. Um... And the reason it was tense is because it was, a, I think, I think, if I remember correctly, it was a Monday. The previous Sunday, I mean the day before, the convention, as it typically did, allows the host pastor to preach. And the host pastor got up and he preached on the blood of Christ. And he preached a message that it was not just human blood. He actually made a comment to the to the effect, as I recall, that it was collected and it is in heaven, sprinkling, constantly sprinkling in some kind of a, <laughs> I don't know what you would call it, a, uh, yeah, the, the mercy seat, right? And so it was somehow collected by the angels. And I mean, this is wacky. And I turned to my wife and I said, this is... This is heretical to me. This is this is awful, and and um, so he had done that on Sunday morning, and on Monday afternoon, John's coming in to address these issues, and he, I don't know. I I said to my wife, I think he probably heard a tape because he basically recited what he had what the pastor had said and called it Neo-Catholicism. This new view of the blood that is becoming quite popular says that it is still being poured out on the heavenly mercy seat even today. That when a person is saved, there is some kind of a pouring out and regathering of that blood. I've had that conversation with a number of people who have taken issue with what I have said. They use Hebrews 12, 24, the sprinkled blood that statement regarding the sprinkled blood to indicate that it is constantly being sprinkled in heaven as an ongoing, incessant 
offering for sin. And then they say further that the blood is never a symbol for death in the New Testament. It always is the fluid. In fact, there was a group of Baptists at Meta some time back, and they voted on that in their statement that whenever the blood of Christ is mentioned in the New Testament, it is always referring to the fluid, and blood is never a symbol for death. Furthermore, they say it is being poured out on a heavenly mercy seat, the sprinkled blood being continually poured out. I, I just warn you against this error. I'll tell you why. That is nothing but Roman Catholic, Anglo-Catholic theology of the perpetual offering of the blood of Christ. That is not a Protestant viewpoint. That is heresy. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not repeatable. It cannot be repeated. You can't have some mystical dumping of blood going on incessantly in heaven without somehow convoluting the statement, the clear statement, that he has by one offering perfected forever them that are sanctified. There is no repeatable characteristic in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then for people to say blood is not a symbol for the atonement, it is a symbol for the atonement. It has to be. It is not the fluid that can save, or Jesus could have bled into a, chastle, a chalice, taken the thing to heaven, and poured that out if it was in the fluid. His atoning work demanded that he die. I turned to my wife, who was sitting next to me. I said, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> right? So it was, it, there was some tension there because of what had happened the previous day. And in fact, that pastor stood up. He wasn't on the panel. He stood up and started to protest John's statements and was ruled out of order. And he left. He stomped out. I mean, it, it was like that. But, and he ultimately, he never returned to the IFCA or he immediately resigned to IFCA. And that's the first time I actually had ever heard John in person. Entered recordings things but he didn't appear to have any notes he just had his bible um and he was so articulate eloquent and thorough thoroughly biblical in what he was saying that i was marveling at his oh one day to be able to handle god's word like that as a 20 something year old uh of course you know, not realizing that John is like one in every 500 years. I'll never be like that. But I, I said that, that was just an, I was in awe of, of the man's biblical literacy and knowledge. That convention in Pennsylvania was not the first time John had addressed the blood of Christ controversy. Two years earlier, he did something he rarely does. He publicly defended himself. In the winter of 1987, Grace to You released a one-hour special simply titled The Blood of Christ. There wasn't a host. This was not an interview or a conversation between John and someone else. This was just John directly addressing the Grace to You audience. Hi, this is John MacArthur, and recently we've had a lot of questions from listeners about what I believe on the blood of Christ. And I thought it might be helpful to just uh, put together some excerpts from sermons preached through the years that'll help you to understand 
where I stand. And to, to say in general, uh, very simply, that I affirm everything the Scripture teaches about the blood of Christ seems very basic. You know me well enough to know that I believe the Bible from front to back, cover to cover. As one little boy said, from geniuses to revolution. Uh, there's no point in the Bible that I don't accept totally, and I believe it literally in every part. Uh, for some strange reason, uh, people have accused me of denying the blood of Christ, which is not so. I affirm that uh, a literal Jesus Christ, who was man in every respect, 100% man, yet God incarnate, died on the cross, shed his literal blood as a sacrifice for sin. And um, I believe that. And I believe that it was that sacrificial death of Christ on the cross that atoned for the sins of man. And those who believe appropriate that atonement and receive eternal life through his death and resurrection. And that's historic Christian theology. Even though John addressed this on the radio, then flew to Pennsylvania to defend himself, he wasn't able to convince all his critics or kill the controversy. I don't think anything came of it except that the people who uh, supported me still supported me, and the people who resented me resented me even more because they, they, they couldn't have you know, triumphed over me on that occasion. I think it helped the people in the middle, but nothing official came of it. I continued in the IFCA. I was happy to do that, and uh, we, I think we did have the convention there a year at Grace Church a year later, so there was no formal reprimand of any kind. All these years later, there's still a fringe minority that's obsessed with this issue. At Grace to You, a listener will periodically ask if John MacArthur denies the blood of Christ. Yet, John isn't frustrated by this. More than three decades ago, he addressed it over the airwaves. Then he met with his critics. Then he stopped talking about it publicly. When someone asks him about it, like I did in the conversation you've been hearing, John doesn't get worked up. He's not mad at the people who still accuse him of denying the blood of Christ. He doesn't see the need to repeat his defense over and over again. Instead, he shrugs and acts like the whole controversy just isn't that big of a deal and keeps on teaching the Bible. In John's response to this particular controversy, both in his defense of the truth and his ability to move on from it, there are lessons for all pastors. If someone criticizes your theology, if they misrepresent what you teach from God's word, you need to first make sure that you can give a thoroughly biblical defense of your position just like John did in Limerick. Where I stand on this issue is where the Bible stands. In summary, I believe that to speak of Christ's blood as it was shed on the cross is the same as referring to his death. They aren't two separate elements as some people are trying to teach. The Bible just does not teach that. That line, where I stand on this issue, is where the Bible stands, captures the essence of John's ministry. It is the reason why he's criticized even by other Christians and certainly by the non-believing world. A little more than a year after the blood of Christ controversy erupted, John preached a series of messages at Grace Church that brought a much different group of critics into his life. I, I just did a, a sermon series on the family and I, I was talking about you know, the, the man, the husband is the 
authority in the home and the wife is submissive. Um, and th this conversation got going and it got to the LA Times and ended up on the front page of the LA Times. And it was, it was a time when everybody was talking about chauvinism. That was the big word, male chauvinism. And this, I seemed like a living illustration of a dinosaur, somebody trying to hold on to male authority in a marriage that uh, was so novel and so bizarre, it was like going to the zoo to see some antiquated character. And so people started coming to our church, and it was really, it was really funny. They came, a lot of people started coming because of the Times article. To the degree, same auditorium that we have now, that we had to have the choir, when the choir went out, as they always do, we had to fill up the choir loft with visitors. It, it's, and literally, so what happened was the people who come the latest ended up in the choir loft, and those would be the people who weren't used to coming because they didn't think you'd have to come early to get a seat. So behind me, while I'm preaching this for all these weeks, are these people who are you know, you know, just hating everything I say, and everybody's looking at their expressions. And media came, ABC, NBC, CBS, and they started interviewing women in the patio about how do you feel about this and blah blah blah. And I remember I was on the NBC nightly news, and the uh, the anchor said to me, "How do you get women to believe this?" And I said, "Well, they believe the Bible." Bible's my authority, and I'm just telling them what the Word of God says. And I remember the next question was, "What do you think of the, what do you think of the L.A. Ram cheerleaders' outfits?" <laughs> I thought, what? What, "What do you mean? What do I think of the L.A. Ram cheerleader outfits?" But that was the next question. Just trying to paint me as some kind of idiot who would think they they should be wearing. Um, you know, nuns' clothes or something as, as cheerleaders because they were too revealing. I didn't even answer that question. But the big question was, how do you get women to believe it? And so it goes back to that authority issue again. I said they believe the Bible. And the, the interviews that I did, and I did a number of them, people were shocked at the response of the women because they went up and down the patio uh, after service. They were interviewing these women, and these, our women had no problem with this. And I said, they've already, they've already committed their, their lives to the authority of the Word of God. And this is just another point that they gladly, you know, follow the leading of the Lord, who's their creator and, and their, their Lord. And they, they follow Him willingly and lovingly. Clearly, non-Christians did not understand John's position. John knew that. But instead of trying to change or adjust what the Bible says to accommodate what the world thinks... He was willing to face the criticism in order to be faithful. Years later, there are still plenty of misconceptions about what John believes and about what Grace Church teaches regarding women's roles. When it comes to this issue, the criticism isn't going away anytime soon. John knows that criticism comes with the territory because all shepherds must speak the truth and call out error, sometimes publicly. And no matter how compelling the defense, the pastor will not convince everyone. There will always be theological critics. 
as we saw in the Blood of Christ controversy and in John's teaching about the role of men and women. And the critics will continue to attack biblical truth. And the preacher needs to keep preaching, keep teaching the Word of God, keep asserting God's authority, and not be moved by the criticism. Of course, so much of the criticism that pastors face is not theological. It's personal. And that's certainly true for MacArthur as a pastor. People have attacked the clothes he wears and the words he speaks. They've gone after his friends and family. They've assumed the worst of his motives and criticized his character. How has John processed that kind of criticism? And how should all pastors deal with personal criticism? Criticism is inevitable. You have to ask yourself, from whom do you want the criticism? And getting beyond the human level, I would say this, that Paul said, and I go back to this so many times, it's a small thing what men think of me, the godly or the ungodly. I, I'm really concerned about a much higher tribune than that, and that's the court of heaven. So I'm happy to have God render the verdict in, on my life and I'll wait for the day when he reveals the secrets of the hearts and then shall everyone have praise from God. So to say that you're going to avoid criticism um, is, is not possible. I, I think of John Wesley who said in his diary somewhere, uh, one evening he wrote these words, Lord, I've received no criticism the entire day. What's wrong? This is Joel Beakey. He's president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary and pastor of Heritage Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Beakey also wrote the book on this episode's topic in 2020. It's called Pastors and Their Critics, a guide to coping with criticism in the ministry. One of my first points in coping with criticism in this book is Consider it inevitable. The Dutch uh, often have this saying, he who stands up in the front will get kicked in the rear. You can't, you can't possibly be a leader in a church. You know, people care deeply about their religious beliefs and please everyone all the time. And sometimes you have to say hard truths because they're biblical. And no matter how lovingly you say them, um, you'll get some kickback. So, you've got to remember, criticism comes with the territory of ministry, because you're a public figure. I was recently told something very similar by one of my professors from seminary, Dr. Alex Montoya. He's the pastor of First Fundamental Bible Church in Whittier, California. There's a phrase that I heard a long time ago. It says, if you don't want to be criticized, say nothing, do nothing and be nothing. So that reminds us that criticism is part of the task. And there is a, um, a positive side. Whenever you attempt to do anything for God, there's going to be some measure of criticism for obvious reasons. Some will like it, some will not. Everyone I spoke to about criticism and the ministry made this point, including Sinclair Ferguson. Chancellor Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. 
no matter who you are, you you will be subject to criticism. Um, and that for a variety of reasons, but the chief one is that we are not perfect. Um, the most public thing that we do is not perfect, namely our preaching. Um, and there will always be people who think that we are too long, too short. Um, and then in private, I think we will also be criticized because of the things that we fail to do. Um, we fail to visit enough, we fail to be X, Y, or Z. Um, and we, I think we just have to understand that that's part and parcel of what is involved in ministry. That triumvirate of pastoral wisdom that we've been hearing from, Beaky, Montoya, and Ferguson, are all pointing to a basic fact of pastoral ministry. Criticism is something every young or aspiring pastor needs to come to terms with before he steps into ministry. Because once he does, everything about him, from his theology to his personality, will likely be criticized at some point. If he's going to endure in ministry, he can't be surprised by it. Because people's religious beliefs are their deepest beliefs. And so um, I think the ministry lends itself to uh, more criticism than most people encounter. I understand you should be aware if all men speak well of you. So I don't expect that. So I expect criticism. So it's um, it's affirming when I get it, and it's a question of where it's coming from. I've, I've said this often, that you're known by the friends you keep, and you're also known by the enemies you make. It was said of David Martin Lloyd-Jones that he spent his whole ministry winning and losing friends. Criticism may be inevitable, but if a pastor takes a courageous stand for the truth because he loves God's word and loves God's people, he can also expect to accumulate friends, to attract others who love the truth and are willing to defend it. Those friendships can provide compelling evidence when the criticism is not legitimate. And if those relationships aren't there, if no one comes to your defense, maybe there's something to the criticism. I have so many close friends. I have so much um, blessing and affirmation coming from the ministry at the church and from family and, and friends like you and others. The Lord has surrounded me. And I've seen beyond that, it's not just the personal um, support and encouragement Beyond that, I see the fruitfulness of the truth. I've lived long enough to know what the, what the truth, the authoritative proclamation of the Word of God does. And so I have this lifelong evidence of the power of the Word of God. And I also know that I've had critics since the beginning, and they've been unsuccessful in any kind of final destruction and I think you have to go back to 2 Corinthians 1.12. Paul said, my conscience is clear. If, if I had a side of my life that I needed to hide, I, having so many critics, I would be afraid that it would get uncovered. 
know, that there was some secret. Pr- but Paul, they, they were trying to say that about Paul. They had a secret hidden life of shame. That's the phrase he uses. And he's basically saying, I'm an open book. More than that, my conscience is clear. So if I'm criticized in something, I just want to check off my conscience on that issue. Is that valid? Maybe an attitude that needed to be changed or something? Examine yourself. That's for all pastors. Not all criticism is valid, but some of it is. We are human. We make mistakes. Sometimes, as MacArthur said, our attitudes and actions need to be adjusted. And people's feedback can help us make those necessary changes. Here again are Dr. Montoya and Dr. Beakey on this point. I think also criticism is is important for us because it, it means that we're not always right or totally right. So we do need we do need someone to hone in and bring us some corrections or some addition or some advice because sometimes criticism is positive. It's a positive critique. You've done this right, but not completely. You need to add such, such, and such. Or this is not uh, entirely right. You need to correct it. I think we all, the, the younger you are, the more important criticism is. I recall reading Spurgeon years ago when people would criticize his sermons and he said that helped him because he would go home and refine his preaching. He would use the critics as he criticized his preaching to go work on those parts of his preaching that needed correction. So his critics made him a better preacher because he adopted the criticism properly. So that to say that the younger we are in ministry, the more we're going to be criticized, the more we need to be criticized so that we don't go off the deep end and and uh, destroy ourselves. Think of criticism as being always negative. You'll become a very pessimistic, even bitter minister. But if you consider the source, who's criticizing you, the motive, and then look at the context, and finally hone in on the content of the criticism, to learn from it, to grow, to mature. Some of our critics actually humble us and shape us and mold us before God and move us to more humility, which is always good for us. Uh, We we, we can't have enough humility. But I, I think if you flip it around, Austin, and you say this, what would you be like as a minister if you never received any criticism? You'd be proud. You'd think you're the best preacher in the world. <laughs> you'd you'd you'd, uh, you'd probably end up idolizing yourself or, or be a spoiled brat or, or something. But we we need criticism. And here's Sinclair Ferguson again with a really important point, describing how a pastor can evaluate criticism and know whether or not it is legitimate. A couple of things here, and the first is that we should always weigh criticism. Um, Is it criticism that actually is absolutely on the mark? Is it criticism that has elements of truth in it, but also elements of error? Is it the kind of criticism that the people who love us most and whom we trust most um, would confirm or deny? And 
so in that context, I think in in pastoral life, if if a, if a pastor is married, his wife is of tremendous importance to him. His family, tremendous importance to him, but also his elders. If he is in a church where there are elders, as I've always been, um, and in that connection, I I think I've always tried to. Uh, develop the principle that the the elders ordinarily I want them to become my best friends in the congregation so that that men who are very much at the hub of the congregation's life can give me helpful assessment of how things look as it were from the circumference of the church's life pastor you need people in your life who know your strengths and weaknesses. Family and friends can tell you whether or not the critics have a point. And if someone you are close to agrees with the critics or initiates the criticism, then you know you must pay attention. Here's a great example from Dr. Beakey. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting we're having this interview today because um, I just got criticized very severely last night and um, I went to the person this morning and sat down and I just looked at this dear uh, sister and I said, you know what? I think you were, you were right. I was wrong. I am very, very, very sorry. Would you, would you please forgive me? And she immediately got tears in her eyes and said, I forgive you fully and freely. And five minutes before this interview right now, she just wrote me a note saying, you have no idea how much this means to me. Thank you so much. Well, you see, when you can genuinely apologize for something you've done wrong, even if you're only 10% in the wrong, it, it just it's like a healing medicine. Pastors need to know if a careless word hurt a member of their flock, or if something they said was not biblically accurate. And often, the best person to deliver that message is a friend or loved one, another elder or pastor, someone who sees a pastor's strengths and weaknesses and loves them enough to be honest with them. Pastors should listen to helpful feedback like that, but at the same time, they can't be consumed by the critics and let them occupy all the space inside their head. We listen to criticism, but we listen to criticism with a biblical objectivity. We, ob we observe our critics with objectivity. We try to discern whether those criticisms are coming from a critical spirit or a loving spirit. Are these the wounds of a friend or otherwise? Strange people and difficult people can, from time to time, have real insights that people who stand in ordinary places don't see. So all of that we seek to take on board, recognizing that we are sinners, that we still have indwelling sin, that we, you know, that we don't know ourselves very well, that none of us actually is able to listen to our own sermons the way anyone else listens to them. We, we, we need to grow in our sense of 
the impressions our ministry makes on people. Uh, and so this always means as we're growing as ministers that we, we will have one ear to criticism, but we may also need, as Spurgeon says somewhere, doesn't mean that every minister needs one good ear and one deaf ear, one good eye and one blind eye, and one pocket that's got a hole in it where he, he will take things and just let them drop, put them in his pocket, knowing that they will fall out of his pocket and press on. Otherwise, the danger is that um, an individual can become so sensitive and so subjective about criticism that they become paralyzed in their ministry. Um, and I think always the remedy for that is our own study of Scripture, the help of the Holy Spirit, um, and the way in which the Scriptures in the, under the ministry of the Spirit kind of force us out of that kind of false subjectivity. No pastor can judge the criticism the right way and endure the unfair attacks if he does not stick close to the biblical text. It will strengthen your resolve when the critics come but it will also invite the critics in the first place. That's inevitable for a life wholly devoted to God's word. In recent years, MacArthur's critics have migrated from books, articles, phone calls, and pulpits onto the internet. There, the criticism is more harsh. Hardly a day goes by that someone, somewhere on Twitter or a blog, doesn't criticize John for what he says about women teaching in the church, the charismatic movement, a church discipline case, or a thousand other issues. More often than not, the criticism isn't only unkind, it's also not even close to being accurate. So a lot of criticism was, was really, this is another way to approach it, but a lot of criticism was nothing but gossip. And the Bible says a lot about gossip. We don't talk about gossip anymore. We need to talk about it. Because what you have now is not just gossip, two women talking over the back fence. What you, what you have now is gossip with a massive global megaphone. So, you know, if you, if you wanted to really evaluate, honestly, many of the modern critics, they're... They're just gossipers. They're malicious, sinful gossipers who have this, this massive megaphone that can spread their gossip. I think the culpability that they bear is, um, is, is exponentially um, increased by the increase of their audience. So how does John MacArthur respond to all this online gossip? this internet mob that's opposed to him. There are a myriad of reasons to dislike me. There's, there's enough to go around for everybody for a long time. Just pick one that's true. That's, that's all I would ask. And if you pick one that's true, then, then I can address it. But if you just spread lies all the time, I have no interest in those. I don't read them. I don't even know anything about them, I wouldn't dignify them. That is a valuable lesson from John's ministry. Your ministry will only endure if you admit that you have flaws 
and if you're reluctant to defend yourself. Here's a great story John once told during a Q&A at Grace Church about his perspective on criticism. First of all, I can't keep up with all my critics, so I learned a long time ago not to try to defend myself, uh, just to write back some kind of a, a letter that says, thank you for the criticism, thank you for pointing these things out. If there's been anything that I've done that offended you, I, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Pray for me and just go on. Um, I just don't think you... I never want to be backed into a position of, of being defensive because if the truth were known, look, I'm not perfect. I know that. And if you happen to pick the wrong thing to criticize me for, you could just as well have picked the right thing to criticize me for. So who am I to, be, to defend myself? I will defend the people around me. Uh, if, if, if people come to me to criticize the people I work with, they're going to find me an unwilling hearer. I don't, I don't take people's criticism of the people that serve the Lord with me or, or are in the circle of faithfulness, uh, I, I don't take that very well. I will defend them. I will always defend them until I have reason not to. Um, but when it comes to myself, I, uh, you know, it's sort of like the Old Testament, let your praise be in another man's lips. I'm not going to spend my whole life trying to defend myself. I got to tell you a funny story. Um, is Melinda, are you here? Where are you, Melinda? Yeah, my daughter, Melinda. Um, some years ago, she, she went to work at Grace to You. Now, she thought, she came to Grace Church, she thought everybody liked her father. You know, because nobody stands up here and criticizes me or protests. It's a pretty, pretty loyal group here. That's why you're here. And she thought everybody liked my father. Well, she came to work at Grace to You, and they put her in the responsibility of, what was it, take an email off the computer or or whatever it was, you were getting messages coming on the computer. All this anti-John MacArthur propaganda was coming like a flood, and she had the job of taking all this stuff off the computer. And there were all kinds of websites that were sort of anti-John MacArthur websites and all this, and she, she just didn't get it. Well, she didn't say anything. She just started firing back at these people. Stuff like this. How dare you? You don't know my father. I know my father, and he does not do that. <laughs> so, finally, as it all began to mount, that's like pouring gas on a fire, you know? You do that. It came even hotter. And uh, finally, she told me about it, and I said, Stop doing that. That's what they want. Are you kidding? You've just fed the monster. They've got John MacArthur's daughter <laughs> reacting to them. That's what they're after. So I just don't think, um, I just don't think there's any virtue in that. Uh, I, you just keep teaching the word. You know, I've said this many, many times. Time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth about a person will be told. And you just keep doing what you do. Do it faithfully. Do the best you can do. Don't defend yourself. Just encourage people. If they criticize you, thank them and say, pray for me and just move on. Um, and let God be your defender and let time and truth be your defender. John MacArthur just identified the two most effective critics a pastor can face. Time and truth. Time will prove a man's character. Truth will prove a man's ministry. Together, they verify the criticism or prove it to be baseless.
Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. In our next episode, we're going to talk about... It's a worldwide pandemic. It's all over the world. That's right. COVID-19. The Rona. Coronavirus is our topic on deck. We're going to find out why MacArthur and the elders closed Grace Church on March 15th, 2020, and then a few months later, in defiance to the government's health and safety mandates, opened her doors. Stay tuned for MacArthur and the government as we continue The Entrusted, the convictions and legacy of John MacArthur. The Entrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Thanks to our new friend Philip at Igloo Music and Cody Signore for doing such a masterful job of editing. Special thanks to Rick Gregory. He generously spent a Friday afternoon with us at his church in Sacramento. I'm also grateful for my preaching professor, Dr. Montoya, as well as the incomparable Sinclair Ferguson, who's always gracious with his invaluable time. Finally, I want to thank Joel Beakey for discussing his helpful book on the pastor and criticism. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, go to tms.edu. ATD, out.